bit nervous, yeah? That's, that's all right. You don't know me, um, apart from my thoughts about breakfast food, really. And I don't quite know you. And so you might be wondering, why is it that I'm here to talk to you about this thing? What, what qualifies me to talk about health? Now, I'm not a doctor. I'm not a nurse. I get all my medical information from Google and Grey's Anatomy, just like everybody else. <laughs> And I don't exactly look like a medical marvel. I've been told I have the ideal physique for mini-golf, but not much else. <laughs> um, so, so what is it that makes me qualified to tackle such a lofty and complex and broad topic as health? If I might humbly suggest a reason that I can talk about this. On a dark and stormy Monday morning, in the middle of January 2016, with all my might, all the determination I could muster and more than a pang of sadness, I quit sugar. For the sake of my health, I just cut it like that. No more ice cream, no more soft drink, no more chocolate. I've been off it ever since. Friends, the struggle is real, but I soldier on. And I should say my wife, Lexi, and I did it together as a team. Uh, it's good teamwork, actually. She cooks great food without any sugar in it, and I just don't cook food with sugar in it. That's how it works, and it goes quite well. But since being off sugar, I've noticed two things. The first one is that I kind of feel morally superior to everybody else. <laughs> you know how when people quit sugar, they can be a bit annoying? Like they're suddenly judging everybody all the time? I totally get it now. I, I think I'm one of the few people in the world who saw that sugar film and felt better about themselves afterwards, rather than just guilty. But the second thing I've noticed is that staying off sugar is really hard. It's kind of, it's too hard sometimes. Sometimes I go to my cafe and I order a coffee and the muffin stares back at me from the window. And it starts talking. Dave, it's okay. No one has to know. They've got no idea that you've quit sugar and I'm a blueberry muffin, so I'm basically good for you anyway. <laughs> It's just so hard to say no. And it got me thinking, why is it so hard to stay off sugar? Why can't I just live my life without being harassed by baked goods all the time? And I realised it's because I just don't care that much about my health. I, I quit sugar kind of because of my health, but, but I don't care enough to make it happen. I'm not that worried about my health. I don't really have much to worry about. I'm in my 20s. I shouldn't have to think about my health this much. If you pushed me on it, I think deep down I'd probably tell you that part of me thinks I'm a little bit invincible. My health isn't going to desert me. I don't spend much time thinking about my health because I don't need to. I'm going to be fine. I reckon for a lot of us, that, that's kind of the case, right? We're, we're just not worried about our health because we don't need to be. I don't know if you've ever sat down and deeply pondered the meaning of hashtag YOLO. But it seems to me like a sensible person would think about the idea that you only live once and decide that that makes life precious. And so I should do everything I can to make it last as long as possible. But I think as millennials, we tend to think hashtag YOLO and somehow decide to put stuff in our body that doesn't belong there or, or jump off a bridge or drive fast 
I think it's hard to quit sugar because we just don't care that much about our health. And we don't have to. We're late teens, early 20s. We shouldn't have to worry about our health. Unless there's something wrong. Then you can't help but worry about your health. You've really got no other option. And for some of us, this is the sad reality. On this campus, even in this room, there will be people who find it hard not to think about health. It takes up far too much of their time and energy. Now, I can't say that I've been through this personally, but I know that my wife, Lexi, has. In fact, she still does. About five years ago, just before we started dating, she got sick, like like really sick. And nobody knew what it was. So for the next two years, she was in and out of hospital and doctor's appointments until eventually they decided she had chronic fatigue syndrome. Now that's really code for, we're not quite sure what's wrong with you. We don't really know how to fix it. So all they can do for chronic fatigue syndrome is give you, give you some ideas for how you might make your life a little bit easier. Now she has improved a lot since that diagnosis and even at its worst, we, we had it a lot better than a lot of other people. But I still look at Lexi and think she's had more tests and swallowed more tablets than anybody her age should ever have to. She's in her 20s. She shouldn't have to care about her health this much. Now, I don't know about your story. I don't know about your story with health. Maybe you don't think about it much at all. Maybe you wish you didn't have to think about it so much. But wherever you're at on that spectrum, can I suggest you need a way to make sense of this. You're going to need a way to process the moment when your health lets you down. Your mortality will catch up to you eventually. Maybe you can see it coming a long way off and it's a slow decline, or maybe it comes crashing into your life like an unwelcome intruder. But sickness, mortality, unhealth is just part of the human experience. Regardless of what you eat or drink, of what you smoke or how much you sleep or whether or not you exercise, even the most conservative estimates tell us that 100% of people will die at some point in their lives. (laughs) But this unwelcome invasion of sickness, of unhealth, it's inevitable. Your health one day will fail you. Sooner, Sooner or later you'll be faced with your mortality. It might be a body that doesn't work like it's supposed to. It might be a mind that doesn't work like it's supposed to. But your mortality will catch up to you. And you need a way to make sense of that. Now, as a Christian, Mark 2 helps me do this. To make sense a little of my own mortality and what to do with it. So the story so far in the book of Mark is basically this. In the ancient Near East, Jesus is trending. He's burst onto scene with one of the more impressive baptisms in history, and then he's travelled around preaching, 
casting out demons and healing people. By the end of chapter 1, Jesus is beginning to draw quite the crowd. So much so that by the time we get to the start of chapter 2, when Jesus comes home, he's drawn such a crowd that there's no more room at the house he's teaching in. It's full, people streaming out the doors, which poses a real problem for the four guys who've carried their paralyzed friend all the way across town to see this miracle worker. You can imagine their sinking feeling when they come within view of the house and they see the crowds streaming out the door. It's going to be harder than we thought. But they're not put off. They walk up to the house and they walk onto the house, onto the roof, where they dig a hole and then they lower the guy down. Just imagine you're in the room at that moment. Just imagine you're in the room listening to Jesus teach and suddenly this paralyzed man starts hanging in front of this famous miracle worker. It's just the perfect setup, isn't it? Here's a paralyzed man sitting in front of the miracle worker. The crowd is all there. You can feel everyone in the room lean forward with excited anticipation. Here comes the miracle. And then Jesus says, Son, your sins are forgiven. And now, it's a little bit awkward. Because no one was expecting that. Here was the perfect setup for a miracle. Jesus takes a swing and a miss. What is he doing? Has he just profoundly misunderstood what's going on here? Showing a distinct lack of social skills? Or, or maybe Jesus... Maybe Jesus isn't feeling up to it today. Not feeling like a miracle this afternoon. Or maybe there's something else going on. And I want to suggest that this moment is not a healing. It's a diagnosis. In this moment, Jesus decides this man's most urgent need is not the use of his legs. The most important thing Jesus can do here is not deal with this man's legs, it's to deal with his sin. Why is that? It's because Jesus knows healing this man is nothing more than a band-aid solution. Because sin is worse than sickness. An old theologian with an awesome name, Francis Spufford, (laughs) said that sin... It's the human ability to stuff everything up. He didn't actually say stuff. He used a more robust word, but that's the light FM version. (laughs) But if sin is the human ability to stuff things up, that's what he said. By rejecting God, by replacing him with other things, by breaking his rules, by making up our own, we've stuffed up our relationship with God. And because that's broken, everything else is thrown out of sync too. Suddenly, our relationships with one another are broken. Our relationships with ourselves, even our relationship to our bodies, broken because of sin. I don't know if you've ever wondered why sin feels, why sickness feels so frustrating. Why is it that sickness just feels a bit wrong? Like like it doesn't belong. It's because sickness is not what we were made for. It's an unwelcome invasion 
into our existence. It's not the way things are supposed to be. But when humans started sinning, things stopped working the way they were supposed to. Now, I want to be very careful here. Here's what I'm not saying. I'm not saying there's a direct relationship, a linear relationship between a sin you did and a sickness you suffer. Okay, Lexi, my wife, is not sick because of something she did at some point in the past. That's karma. That's not Christianity. But on a macro level, it's true that sin has just thrown our world into chaos. When humans started sinning, things stopped working the way they were supposed to. Which means every problem of sickness, at its core, when you trace it back, is a result of the fact that we live in a world marred by sin. Broken by sin. So with this paralyzed man, Jesus wants to diagnose the real problem. He's rejected and replaced God. Jesus knows even if his legs were fixed, this man is still left with the problem of his mortality. He will get sick again. He will still die, and when he does, he'll have to deal with the consequences of sin and face the God he's rejected. Which means this man's problem is not his paralysis, it's his sin. And sin is worse than sin. read on, Jesus does more than just diagnose the problem. He claims to be the remedy, to fix it. Now, this may not be the healing we were expecting at first, but there's something else going on in this story. Because the teachers of the law, the religious leaders in the room, don't seem so fazed by the lack of leg fixing. They're worried about something else entirely. In verse 7, they ask a very insightful and Really very heated question. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Now the answer for those of you playing along at home is nobody. Nobody can forgive sins but God alone. The Jewish scriptures, the Old Testament, is very clear. God is the one sinned against, so he must be the one to grant forgiveness. And yet Jesus says he can pull it off claims to be able to forgive sins and so the teachers of the law freak out you can't claim to forgive sins you can't just go around claiming to be God we have a word for that and it's blasphemy you can feel the tension in the room start to rise the heat is turned up Jesus notices and so he says in verse 8 why are you thinking these things which is easier, to say to this paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat and walk? But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the man, I tell you, get up, take your mat and go home. It's one thing to say to someone, your sins are forgiven. It's another thing to say, get up and walk. But Jesus wants everyone to know that he can do both. Here he refers to himself as the Son of Man. Do you see that? The first time he calls himself the Son of Man in Mark's Gospel. But he'll use it again and again. And the Son of Man is a throwback to Daniel chapter 7 in the Old Testament. 
Now, Daniel chapter 7 is only alluded to in passing here, but it's hugely significant. The Son of Man as a title is just the tip of an iceberg, but when Jesus calls himself the Son of Man, he means to bring the entire iceberg with him. Because in Daniel 7, we see an incredible description of this Son of Man. Daniel writes, he saw one like a Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. By alluding to Daniel 7, by calling himself the Son of Man, Jesus made a very clear point. He is the one with the authority of God to forgive sins. The people of God were waiting for a representative from God, a king, to bring a kingdom that would never be destroyed, not by time or by sickness or by death. And Jesus comes to the scene and says, That's me. I'm him. I'm the king of that kingdom. I have the authority of God to forgive sins. And then his miracle backs it up. He tells the man to get up, take your mat and walk. And he does. But the miracle is not the point. The miracle is just proof of the bigger story that Jesus is trying to tell. That he's more than just a miracle worker. He's God himself. Come to do something about the problem of sin. Jesus is better than health because sin is worse than sickness and he's come to fix it. Jesus is better than health because sin is worse than sickness and he's come to fix it. To deal with the consequences of our sin, the punishment of death that we deserve to give us hope of a life free from sin, free from sickness, and as the story go on, goes on, we see that the way he does this is by experiencing human mortality in all its qualities. He suffered physical injury. He suffered weakness. He suffered anxiety. He suffered despair. <coughs> Though he was without sin, Jesus experienced the consequences of sin as he suffered death. And then he rose from death to life, from mortality to immortality. And here's the crazy flame of Christianity. As the risen Lord, Jesus offers to give us what is his. A life transplant, if you will. Though we are sinful and deserving of death, Jesus suffers death for us and rises again so that he can offer us new life. Forgiveness, resurrection, a life that is better, a life that is eternal. Friends, Jesus is better than health because he's come to offer more than healing. He's come to offer hope. Hope of a better day when there's no more death 
or mourning or crying or pain when there will be no more sickness. Hope of a day when the dead will rise. Hope of a day when the lame will walk. Hope of a day when the blind will see and the deaf will sing for joy. Hope of a day when Lexi isn't so tired all the time. When cancer is just not a thing we have to deal with. A day when we don't live in fear of death anymore. Jesus is better than health. Your sin is worse than sickness and he's come to fix it. He's better than health because he's come to offer more than healing. He offers hope. If you're here and you're not quite sure what you think of Jesus yet, maybe you're coming along, you've been coming for a while, you're still trying to work it out. Maybe it's your first time, you had a friend who just wouldn't stop asking and so they managed to drag you along this week. Maybe there's a cute girl and you just followed her in. It happens. Well, if I might be so bold, I'd like to make a prescription for you. Here's what I would suggest. You step back, think about what we've talked about, the ideas, the claims we've just looked at. And recognize that these claims, these ideas are just outrageously, offensively, disgustingly big. This is massive. And so you owe it to yourself to find out whether or not this is true. To do even a little bit of investigating. You owe it to yourself to find out whether Jesus is who he says he is. Whether he can do what he says he can do. Now, I'll be honest. I am not getting paid enough to be here if this is not true. I don't want to waste the rest of my life talking to people about Jesus if it's a fairy tale. So do me a favour. Do yourself a favour. Work this out. Look at it. Investigate. Because if it's not true, I want to know about it. But if it is true, then nothing in the world could possibly be more important. Please work out what you think about Jesus. And as you do that, here's a piece of advice. You're totally free to accept or reject Christianity. You're free to do that. That's entirely up to you. But whatever you do, let me beg you, please, make an informed decision about this. Make sure you accept or reject the true Jesus. Not some counterfeit, fake figment of someone else's imagination. Make sure you accept or reject the real thing. Friends, if you think Christianity is about being good so that God will let you into heaven when you die, then you have absolutely no idea what Christianity is about. And you should be very nervous that you've accepted or rejected a fake. If you think you're okay with God because you went to Catholic school, or because you had your parents had you baptized when you were a kid, or because you go to church, and you've got no idea what Christianity is about, you should be really nervous. 
that you've accepted or rejected are fake. So please make an informed decision about this. Do, do even a little bit of investigating. Do it while you're here at uni. You might decide it's not true, and that's okay. But you've got nothing to lose by, not, by, by looking into it. And you have everything in the world to lose by pretending this doesn't matter. <coughs> so please look into it. Do just a little bit of investigation. And I suspect the CU would love to help you do that if you're willing to let them. So I'm going to hand back to Jason. He's going to give you some ideas of what that might look like.